I wasn't very monkey-like, I know. <sighs> so uh, this is our first video podcast ever, but there's still going to be people listening to the audio version. And for those people, they don't know what you just done, Graham. Graham has a thing on his head that looks like that's supposed to be a horse. Or, it's uh, my, main, my May 95 mask. Well, can... um, what's new with you, Graham? Anything new happening in the world? You can call me Dr. Ma. Okay. I'm call you. That's a joke only Chinese speakers will get. <laughs> How about this? There we go. Very nice. Very nice. So uh, our, our dozens of viewers can now see what we look like. This is great. That's better. That's better. That's relevant for our topic today, which is fashion. <laughs> you know what? This fogs up my glasses. All this sort of PEP stuff is, or PPE stuff, I should you know, say. There's a secret to that. Yeah. The secret is you're supposed to pinch the nose. I know. The mask goes around it and the glasses this, go on top. This is the cheap one. This doesn't have the wire at the top. So anyway. Uh, we're underpaid, Professor. I think we're safe. So who are you? Uh, well, who are you? You you are Dr. Graham Sanders of the University yes. of Toronto. Mm-hmm. And? And you are Raywat Dianandan, an epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. Yay! It's been it's been like two years since we've done an episode. Yeah, and I'm a professor of classical Chinese literature, which is highly relevant to today's topic. Sure. Why not? Why not? And you're a smart guy, so you, you've have, you've got stuff to contribute today. So today's I topic. Have a PhD, so I know everything. Well, according to uh, Twitter, anybody with any kind of education is an expert on what's going on. Right, especially uh, economists. Especially economists. Yeah, yeah. yeah annoying. Where so my... um, there's something going on in the world right now. It's not sports. It's not an election. It's not an asteroid hitting the Earth. It's uh, something else. Um, there's a disease going around, and people have many questions, and they have naturally turned to those of us with expertise. And who better to ask than Graham Sanders and Ray Dionandon about any topic in the world? I'm really uncomfortable with this video format, actually. <laughs> I know. It's creepy, isn't it? Usually, usually we're around a table. Nobody can see us. There's alcohol. Well, I've got I've got the alcohol still, so that's good. Uh, I've got so, you know, this is green tea. Mm, this is Corona beer, so got relevant, it. relevant. Um, yeah. I thought the reason you wanted to do video is you wanted people to you know see your luxurious mane of hair there. There's that too. Yeah. Um, having been locked indoors for so long, haven't had a chance to go to the barber, so this thing is out of control. Uh, yeah, yeah I, have a, I have a voice for audio podcasts, but uh, the rest of Rest of me is uh, anyway. Graham used to be a very handsome young man, and then <laughs> something happened. I did this on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Some kind of chronic illness we call middle age. Okay, this isn't helping anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so people people want to know some answers, Graham. People oh, okay. are dialed in today to hear uh, hear the experts. If that's what we are, talk about this thing called COVID nineteen. Which and is the disease. It's, exactly. So the, Not the virus. will be listening to this podcast decades from now when they dissect this moment in history and they're going to know, they're going to want to know what we're talking about. Right. COVID-19 is the? The disease caused by the virus, which is called? SARS-CoV-2 because it's the second coming of SARS. 
-hmm. and SARS was this thing we saw 17 years ago, uh, a serious respiratory infection caused by a coronavirus. And this coronavirus, I really hate it when you know, the media just talks about a coronavirus. There, mm. there are many coronaviruses. Some common colds are coronavirus, aren't they? That's exactly right. Many common colds are, are, are coronaviruses. So there are about six, I think, uh, coronaviruses that the human animal has had exposure to throughout history. This is mm. the sixth one. The fifth one was SARS, obviously. And the other four were common colds. So because it's brand new, it's uh, giving us a lot of issues. Can I ask you one question? But of course. Uh, uh, the coronaviruses... Soap, not shampoo. <laughs> well, I'll, get, I'll give you a chance to fix your hair while I'm asking this question. I Are coronavirus... question about the hair product. <laughs> is coronavirus responsible for your hair? <laughs> no, is, is coronavirus um, usually a more serious disease? Like a coronavirus cold, is that a more serious cold than your average cold? No, it doesn't have anything to do with the, um, the virus species. It has to do with, the uh, A, the extent to which our species has been accustomed to that virus. Mm -hmm. So do we have an immune response for it? And B, uh, the, the actual morphology of, of the virus itself, how well it attaches to the receptor. So there are a variety of viruses um, that have poor connectivity to our receptors, and so they cannot infect us well. Huh. This one just miraculously, or by design, mm -hmm. uh, connects really well to the ACE2 receptor, which is one of the reasons that it's so easy by the way, I was kidding about the design part. Right. Part of our conversation, I think we'll touch upon the conspiracy theories. But one of the things that uh, fuels the theories is just the, the efficient way that this virus seems to know how to get around our body. But to answer your question, uh, most of the problems we're seeing right now with this virus have to do with the fact that it's brand new. Therefore, nobody has any innate immunity to it. Hence the title, Novel Coronavirus. That's right. It's not because it's a long story. Because, you know, the humor. Man, it's, it's, it's been a couple of years since we told these stupid jokes, and I have not aged well. We're not charging for this, are we? <laughs> not anymore. Okay, people are getting their money's worth. All right, shall we go right to the questions then? Go to the questions, man. All right. By the way, uh, these questions were submitted by the public. We had an mm -hmm. open survey open to the public, shared by social media, and we got a bunch of interesting ones. I'm, I'm trying to figure out why I'm looking so orange, but anyway. There we go. That's a bit better. You got the Rona. <laughs> so the first question is from Chocolate Donut. I, I wasn't going to read out the full names because for people's anonymity, but uh, I just let's call them Chocolate or her Chocolate CD. CD. Uh, to what extent are researchers able to use global COVID nineteen data in their work, given the different different capacities of different countries' health systems to gather this data, test and track cases? as well as the different standards applied even among countries with advanced health systems. Example, in Taiwan, you have to have uh, tests clean three days in a row before you're considered cure, cured of COVID-19, but that's surely not the case everywhere. Okay. So I get the idea, and um, the answer is epidemiology is a dirty, dirty science, hmm. which is why I'm in it. <laughs> no, it's, or it's the other way around. It's dirty because you're in it. So population epidemiology in particular, we use non-ideal, often administrative data that's not made for the purposes of doing the work that we're doing. In this particular case, um, the data is made for this purpose. However, it's not well collected, not, not the fault of anyone in particular, it's just the nature of the game. And it is, a, a, it is not homogeneous in the way that it is collected. So absolutely, that is a major problem. But we do the best that we can with what we're 
and we try to account for the errors in sampling, in measurement, and so forth, in, in how we make conclusions. But yeah, that's, that's a very point. Um, we don't know, for example, what the true prevalence is because no one has done a prevalence study. We don't know, for example, what the true um, base fatality rate is, for example, because the base population calculations are different every time. But we, we won't know the case study. fatality rate until, until it's over, right? I mean, yeah, pretty know. much true. Yeah. Uh, and keep in mind, with case, a case fatality rate, by the way, is the proportion of people who get the disease who then die of it. And it changes uh, over time for a variety of reasons. One is we get better at dealing with it. The more experience we have with the disease, the less likely you're going to die of it. Ebola used to have a crazy high uh, CFR. Um, like 10 years ago, it was like 90% or higher. But right. it's come down to like 70% in the last couple of years because of our experience in treating Ebola patients. So the case fatality rate is not inherent in the virus or the virulence itself. It's also a factor of how we can deal with it. It's a factor of um, the innateness of, of the virus. Uh, so it depends on how we compute the denominator, and it depends on our experience in treating it. So it's not a great estimator. Of, of if you're, if, can I just add on a question here to Chocolate Donuts' question? If you're dealing with dirty data um, and you can't maybe, band, dirty data. Dirty, you can't trust any perhaps specific report of results, but can you still spot trends in the results, even if, even if the individual data is maybe not too reliable? Graham would have made uh, a passable epidemiologist. Not a great one, but an acceptable one. That's my goal in life, passable. Yeah, you, could, you could, like, pour the coffee at WHO <laughs> and maybe pipe. You'd be that guy when they make the movie about this who's, like, uh -huh. bringing in the donuts right. and, like, has an insightful comment when the yes. big shots are talking, and that triggers the conversation to go to the next scene. Right. Oh, my, my cousin was having a talk the other day and he, I thought he had the disease because he was coughing a lot. But that's not possible because the disease wasn't around just then. And the, the big shots around the table go, oh, maybe it's been with us longer. And Graham walks away with his donuts having changed the world. Okay, it's time to come back to Earth, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yes, the answer is, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to give you a moment. So the answer is yes, um, we can definitely see trends. All right. But again, the accuracy of those trends is going to vary depending upon precision and the reliability of that data. Yeah, we okay. use it for trend purposes. Thank you. This next question is from THY, Thai, Thai. I know T well, so yes. Okay. Uh, can you explain the hammer and dance concept and what are your thoughts on its potential implementation in Canada? So those who don't know, the hammer and the dance were terminology put forth by a particular writer who wrote about this in a public blog some weeks ago. And he's not an epidemiologist, but he's a clever guy, who I think is you know, rehashing some of the, the ideas put forth by statisticians. So if we did nothing with this virus, the, um, the rate, the explosive rate of contracting it would be quite high. And since a large proportion of people, larger than the flu, for example, would die of it, a very large number of people would have died had we done that. As well, given the explosive spread of this thing over a short period of time, uh, a very large number of people would have contracted it and been hospitalized in a short period of time, thus overwhelming our healthcare system. So we didn't do nothing. We did something. So one thing that uh, was proposed is we mitigate. Mitigation means, well, we, um, we engage in social distancing, keeping six feet apart from each other. We don't 
go-to could you, sorry, uh, Raywalk, can you put the mic maybe a little bit closer to your mouth? It's sometimes cutting out a bit. Sure. How's that? Is that better? That's better, yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, with mitigation, we're doing a social distancing. We're keeping gatherings to a small number of people. We're taking takeout food more often than eating restaurants. With mitigation, we will lengthen the time it takes for people to get uh, more, for, for the new cases to arise. The idea there is to buy some time so that the healthcare system can, you know, can, uh, can process the new infections. So the next uh, option is suppression. Mitigation is, you know, social distancing. Suppression is hard lockdown. That's when we're in quarantine and we have a very low likelihood of actually being exposed to people. Now, the, the, the thinking goes that if you engage in mitigation, loose mitigation, like the Swedes are trying to do, and like the Brits were going to do initially, is that you keep the rate of new case generation to a manageable number and the, the process through the healthcare system without overwhelming it too much. So in using the metaphor of hammer and dance, is that either hammer or dance? No, we'll get the hammer and dance in a second. Okay, that's not that's neither one of them. No, uh, I'm, I'm having a large preamble. Okay. Because I'm good that way, Graham. I, <laughs> I don't like to go straight in for, you know, for the big thing. I like a little foreplay. So my foreplay is the preamble here. Yeah, so, I think I'm going to leave it this way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to keep this clean. It's really Thank high. goodness they were practicing this physical distancing. That's all I can say. <laughs> so, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, with, with quarantine or a lockdown, then we have a more uh, suppressing kind of, kind of idea. Now, the mitigation strategy, again, the idea was to process people through the machine so that enough people eventually recover and get uh, immunity, presumably, when they recover. Um, the danger there, of course, is that a lot of people are going to die, um, much like in the first scenario when we did nothing, and they're going to die in short order, and also they may overwhelm the system still. So it's a, a delicate sort of you know, managing of your case rate. The suppression strategy is all about buying a lot of time, because the more time we have to deal with this, the lower the case fatality rate comes down, and the people that would have died in the mitigation strategy don't have to die here. They can wait longer and learn about treatments and things like that. So in the suppression strategy, that's the hammer. We hammer this thing down to a couple of new, well, not a couple, but a handful of new cases every few days. And um, the reproduction number, which is the number of people that a given infection can create, goes below one, so fewer and fewer cases occur. The problem with the hammer is that unlike the mitigation strategy where you're processing people so that eventually you get to herd immunity, right. you can talk about herd immunity is later on if you like, um, the process with, with, with the, the hammer is that you get the numbers down really fast in a matter of weeks, but then when we return to society, a couple days, weeks later, Numbers skyrocket back again. Mm -hmm. The disease didn't go anywhere. We You're just postponing the inevitable in that We're case. Postponing the inevitable. Yeah. So the dance, the dance is what happens when we deploy public health. So uh, a lot of public health infrastructure, like testing, like we've never seen before, contact tracing, all that stuff. So when we get this caseload down to a small manageable amount, then we do all this great public health stuff to do the dance where every time a spike of cases happens, we descend on it public health investment to get that down again. And you maintain that dance for as long as it takes for the vaccine to arrive. So a country like um, 
South Korea, perhaps Taiwan, they went right into the dance phase because they had enough testing yeah. and isolated enough cases. They didn't have to do the hammer first. They could just go straight That's to right. that. So one way to think about it is pandemics come in a variety of phases, but two broad phases. The first broad phase is when you have isolated cases, and then you can use your contact tracing and your testing to quarantine key places and, and prevent community spread. But when community transmissions happens, you get exponential growth. At that point, you're in the crisis that we're in right now. Right. You need mitigation and, and lockdown and suppression. So um, the idea after the hammer is you go back to that first phase of the pandemic. You've got a couple of sporadic cases um, the way that South Korea and Singapore did. Essentially. So uh, the question is, can we do this in Canada? Yeah, I think it's what we have to do in Canada. I think it's the best way to maintain, to get back our economy, get people back into work, and get people out of this crazy shut-in existence we have right now, but it takes investment in public health, particularly a lot of testing. So it was a good question, and um, uh, I just realized now that that hammer and dance strategy is essentially what I've been advocating for the last few weeks. I guess I'm not that creative. <laughs> it's an obvious solution. But the answer is yes. It's something that we can do in Canada. And, I think we should. and it sounds like the hammer and dance in combination would result in less, fewer overall deaths than just trying to do mitigation from the beginning. I think so. I think so. Because the nuance people are missing is that um, we get better at treating this as time goes on. Mm -hmm. So the people that would have gotten sick and suffered and died last week didn't have to. Mm -hmm. They have gotten the disease two months from now. Right. Okay. Our next question is from Dia. Are there any projections on when testing will be available to test for immunity to COVID? It would be so helpful to know who has had the virus and recovered from it so they could safely be in public space again. Is this a realistic expectation? So um, you had asked a bit about this as well, and I think you know, you've done some reading on it. Um, we're talking here about the serology test. This is a test for antibodies. And uh, if you have been exposed to a virus or the virus, um, presumably your body has mounted an, an immune response. And so there should be fragments, residual antibodies left over that are specific to that, to that insult. So the idea here is if we can test to see if you've been exposed to it in the past, then we'll know if you're immune. Absolutely, this has to be done. And there's a huge full court press on to provide a whole uh, flotilla of different kinds of serology tests. If you go to Health Canada's website, you will see dozens, literally dozens of serology tests being trialed at the moment. Some countries have them already, but they rush them into market. And the issue is that it's unclear how well they work yet. Uh, and Health Canada, I think, is doing the right thing and making sure we get the right test first. Here are the issues in the serology test. First, uh, just because you have the antibodies doesn't mean you're immune. You need to know exactly what the fraction or the proportion or the load of antibodies present to confer immunity is. That has to be determined. Second, um, we don't know really if antibodies mean immunity. I mean, it has to, right? Like, the assumption we're making here is recovery means immunity. And there's a lot of reasons for assuming that, and there's no real evidence to suggest that it isn't. But keep in mind that it might not be. If it isn't, we're kind of in deeper trouble than we thought. Are there cases of other viruses where people have gotten the disease from the virus and then get it again? Does that happen? Yeah, I mean, immunity will always come, but the question is, in what time frame? Will it be days, weeks, months, or years, or lifetimes? So the common cold, you get it back, in the same season, right? 
because the immunity you get from the common cold is weeks or months long, definitely not years long. Right. Uh, so, um, uh, and of course, the, if the virus mutates a whole lot in a short period of time, then that immunity means nothing as well. So that's, if that's a scenario, we're in for a whole different conversation here. But so far, right. the evidence is that is not the scenario. And so, um, so far, they, the, the coronavirus doesn't seem to be the kind that would mutate very frequently? It, it's mutating a lot. And, okay. and I saw one study that suggests there are eight different strains already circulating, but the distinctions between the strains are minute. I, I liken it to different races of the same human population. So would a vaccine be effective against all of those strains? So far, yes. Right? So think about you and I are different races, different ethnicities, and, and yet the same bullet kills both of us. Right. So these this uh, virus can mutate in different versions, but the same bullet, the same vaccine will take care of them both. The last thing I want to say about the serology test is that uh, it's possible that if you test positive for an antibody to a coronavirus, it may be detecting your exposure to a different coronavirus. So, the ah. cold, for example. so that's the kind of testing that needs to be done. And that's undergoing right now. I predict we're going to have a, a serology test in the Canadian market in two weeks. Two weeks? Moving, I think so, based wow. upon what I've seen in, in the USA and in the UK. Of course, in the UK, they got there pretty fast. And that's I've heard the um, swab test for coronavirus is only, what, 70% accurate? Yeah, so it has a high false negative rate. Right. That is, um, if you test negative for it, sometimes it's not right. And so, how would that uh, compare to the serology test, do you think? Serology test, the statistics I've seen so far, they're much better hmm. than the ones that have been tested. So um, we don't want, I'd rather have false positives than false negatives. We don't want people running around thinking that, they're, um, that they don't have the, uh, the disease and they do. We'd rather have people thinking that they do and they don't. Right, right. I guess that I've heard that if you are displaying classic symptoms of coronavirus, you might as well just assume you have it in the absence of a test. That's right. So some, some jurisdictions, uh, the Germans, I think BC does it this way, Quebec does it this way, they don't waste a test determining if you've got the disease or not. They, they say, do you have the following X symptoms? Mm-hmm. Have you had them for this number of, of days? And we're going to say you're a presumptive case, and the test might fail anyway, so let's just say you have it. Because we're going to treat you the same anyway. So you have it, it seems to me that sometimes testing would be more valuable to find asymptomatic cases rather than people who already look like they have it. I mean, that is the great question that everybody keeps asking me. And the problem with testing right now is that it has to be viewed through a variety of lenses. There's a clinical lens that tells us that a test tells us what disease you have so we know what treatment to give you. Mm-hmm. And there's a public health lens that tells us if you've got the thing so we know whether to contact, trace, or isolate you. Right. You've only got a fixed number, a, a finite resource of tests, as we do right now in Ontario and in most places. And you have to deploy those tests strategically. That means giving it to the places where you really need to control the spread. Right now, everybody should be at home. So theoretically, we shouldn't be running around infecting people. Right. In a prison or a long-term care center, people are trapped there, and they're in, in contact with a variety of people. We have to test all of those people. Right, right. We have to test all the healthcare workers because they're going to be in, in contact with people. Right. Yeah. It makes sense for limited populations. Like right. they did that in that one town in Italy where they tested everyone in the entire town, and they were able to get rid of it in short order, but... Right, so yeah. if you've got the resources. Yeah. If you haven't got the resources, you only test the symptomatic ones because you need to get those people definitely hidden away fast. Right, right. And you need to know that they need to be uh, 
Okay, here's another question. This one's from Louise. Um, and this is probably what we can learn from it now for the future. Could we have actually prevented Corona if Wuhan had acted very aggressively, uh, acknowledging that this is 2020 hindsight and not assigning blame, or would it have become a pandemic regardless? Um, I'm an optimist and I believe in public health. And I think um, a serious public health response at the time of the first outbreak would have uh, contained this thing. So yes. Sorry, could you repeat that last part? I, I, I think that had we reacted with the appropriate intense public health response, we would have contained this quickly. In the, right. the problem is you don't identify the thing often until it's too late. This is a brand new virus. And it, the timeline was such that people were just seeing new cases of pneumonia. And it was unclear what it was at first. So it may have been impossible, given the diagnostic culture that we have, unless you're always on alert for new things, like maybe they should be in around the wet market of China. It's unlikely you would have caught this in time. I'm wondering, though, if now public health systems around the world will be that much more sensitized to this? Oh, I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. However, as we learned from 9-11, people's sensitivities last about six years. And... Uh, yeah, that's true. Diminishes again. Um, Louise has quite a few questions, so I'm going to um, skip down to another question and then come back okay. if we have time. Uh, let's go to Danielle. If we have time. If we have Where do you got to be, Graham? <laughs> I get to a party or something? <laughs> There's a limited attention span we can expect of our audience, but I suppose they can just turn, it off, turn us off at any time if they want. Um, so Danielle asks, how long do you think we will actually need to socially distance for? This is the big question. Right? And also, when do you think they will have a test, especially an at-home mail-in test, to search for immunity to the virus? Will this mean we had it, but we're relatively asymptomatic? That goes back to the other question. But yeah. There's a lot is, going on there. Yeah, so uh, how long sure. do we really need to socially distance for? Maybe is a good one. Well, let's do the testing part first, because um, right. one thing we didn't address is uh, um, the, the at-home portion. And that's going to be part of the solution as well. And the Americans have actually cleared, uh, I think, a couple of tests by FDA for people to take at home, and then they mail their swabs to a lab, and they phone later on what the results are. That's a that's a good way of doing this, of people to know if they are immune. So I think that's going to come in short order, uh, possibly in a month or two, if not sooner. Um, so the first part of the question is, how long must we social distance? Yeah. Of course, no one knows for sure, but based upon the modeling that's been done so far is North America, most of North America will hit the peak of this wave in April, mid to late April. And most of this wave will have abated by end of May, early June. That's not to say we should go back into the wild at that point, but we probably will. I think um, my supposedly informed opinion, which is not government policy, I think we will have a stage re-entry into society at the end of May, early mm -hmm. June. But it will be not in the way that you think. There will still be isolation distancing protocols in place, a little bit like they have in Sweden, where people go to cafes still, but the tables are very much far apart. You can't hang out in parks together, close together. Uh, sporting events will probably still be uh, disapproved of. You won't have this lockdown scenario, but you will have a distance. So that's coming probably this summer. Um, so the short answer to the question, I think, We'll be out of our houses end of May, early June, but social distancing will be maintained for months. After. Right. So I want to clarify, when we pass the peak, 
that is no indication that we are achieving herd immunity. It just means that that's how long it's taken for the social distancing to take effect. That's exactly correct. Um, herd immunity for this disease is anywhere from 40 to 70% of the population. You think right now? <laughs> putting down coronavirus. <laughs> turning orange. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so far, we think maybe like 4% at the most has been infected. Uh -huh. So we're not going to get to herd immunity anytime soon. Right. Probably a good thing because a lot of people would die. Um, so uh, yeah, the, the peak of the way simply means that we've got the new cases down to a simmering boil. Public health needs to step in in partnership with population that needs to distance itself. Okay, good. Um, let's see. Alan asks, we were informed COVID-19 can be in you for days before showing symptoms. If during that same incubation time you got infected by multiple carriers, each with possibly ever so slightly different mutations of the virus, would I be correct in thinking that that would result in multiple infections in your own body as each hit takes a hold? Maybe something akin to being shot by one bullet versus being shot by multiple bullets. Could this be why healthier 30 and 40 year old health workers are dying at such a high rate in hot spots like Italy, Iran, and New York? So I there's, guess there's, there's viral load. Yeah there's, yeah, there's a lot going on in that question. There's uh, the question of viral load um, and the question of multiple strains. So the idea of multiple strains infecting you having a more serious effects. I don't think that makes a lot of sense because as we discussed, the current multiple strains are so similar, it doesn't seem to have that different effect on your body. If your immune system can recognize one, it can probably recognize the other the same way until there's a, a sufficient mutation to make them diverge. Right. But the idea of viral load is real. And it's not really being talked about as much as it should. And that idea is, um, well, viral load is how much your body has in it. If you're, when a virus infects you, it's using your DNA to create more viruses. So one way we, we measure the seriousness of HIV patients, for example, which is, really, is, to, is to measure how much viral load they have. And the more they have, the worse the disease is in terms of producing more of it. Um, we're talking here more about infectious dose. The infectious dose is the amount of exposure you need to become sick. And healthcare workers working around uh, uh, many sick people are going to have a larger infectious dose than other people. So that does make sense that if you're around more of it, you're going to get possibly sick. I don't think this has been studied to any large extent, but that is so that's the best answer I can give at this point. Okay. Um, and here are some questions from Marianne's daughter. Uh, do we need to be cautious of the ability of mosquitoes to either carry COVID-19 or transmit by biting two people in a small space. So I guess it's going to be carried by. Uh, so um, viruses transmit in many ways. Uh, number one, physical contact, like sexual contact. Uh, number two is vector transmission, which is mosquito bites. Right? Take blood from one person, give it to another. Number three is um, uh, droplet transmission. That's when I cough on you and the droplets in my respiratory fluids contain bits of virus and they land on your eyeball or your mouth and you ingest it that way. Number four would be um, aerosol transmission. That's when the nuclei of the droplets end up on the particles in the air and float around for a long time. And but it's like measles? Sure. And, yeah. uh, and the last one is uh, fomite transmission. Fomites is when these droplets or particles land on a doorknob and you go and touch that doorknob later on and touch your face and get it out. So far... Um, we don't think this virus is spread by uh, 
without vector or physical contact. It's by droplet, aerosol, and fomite only. And it's only really been observed in droplet. Aerosol makes sense, it's plausible, and, and fomite has been demonstrated in laboratory conditions. So uh, I wouldn't worry about the mosquitoes. Okay. Can I uh, follow a question for that? If it were aerosol, like actually hanging around in the air, um, wouldn't it be a lot, wouldn't the uh, R-naught rate be a lot higher at this point? Yeah, I mean, one argument is because it is partially aerosol, that's why it's high. It's mm -hmm. really like 2.5, the R-naught, which is again, a reproductive number. Um, so not so far, we think most cases are caused by droplet, but a few of them have to be caused by aerosol. Okay. Transition is so high. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Oh, this is a good question also for Marianne's daughter. Why is it being said that this virus can stay alive on stainless steel for up to nine days when it's known that viruses cannot live without a host? Viruses typically only survive for 15 minutes on surfaces without DNA. So what's going on there? Well, there's a lot going on in that question. Um, some of it's right and some of it's wrong. First of all, this virus doesn't have DNA. It has RNA. Mm -hmm. And viruses can live without a host for mm -hmm. very long periods of time, up to hours and days. Absolutely. Um, this one has been observed to be viable on surfaces in many days. The harder the surface, the more likely it is to be alive. And whether or not viruses are actually alive, it's a philosophical question. Right. You know, but they're viable, they're, meaning it can still infect you. Um, it, it likes steel a lot. It doesn't like copper for some reason. Mm -hmm. Copper has ancient antimicrobial properties. It doesn't like softer surfaces like fabrics and paper and, and food. Um, on those surfaces, it'll last hours and maybe a day according to experimental conditions. Um, it's never been observed, really, as far as I know, in the wild. Um, the answer to the question is, viruses absolutely can survive without a host for extended periods of time. All right. There's a question from Alan. Numerous drugs have been described as prophylactics and seem to be helping first responders avoid or at least cope better upon infection, and that is amazing. This suggests to me that until a vaccine is found, countries should continue pumping healthy people with prophylactic drugs. Obviously, this is not a cure. If patients contracted COVID-19 and then receive such treatment, preventing the virus from doing irreparable damage, would said patients then still be susceptible to repeat infection of COVID-19? Would that repeat infection be just as severe as the original? Or would the speedy recovery induced by the prophylactic drug ensure they now have antibodies? That's so, an interesting question. Now, I think he means by prophylaxis, plasmapheresis. Because hmm. um, that's the only prophylaxis that we know about right now. And plasmapheresis is a like, convalescent serum. Um, it's, the idea is you take blood from someone who has recovered from the disease, you, you spin it down until you get a, a, thick, a thick antibody soup hmm. they have produced, and you inject it into another patient and, um, who has the disease, and that's a, a borrowed immunity. The, the, we have a lot of vaccines that work that way. I think the rabies vaccine is an immunoglobulin. It's one way to make a do-it-yourself rabies vaccine. Okay, better off, do-it-yourself snake venom. You get a snake, bite a horse, let the horse recover from it because it's so big. Then you extract the immunoglobulins from the horse and that's your anti-venom. That's what happened to me at the beginning of this episode. That's why you're all orange. It's great. So um, the question is, it is, is it a prophylaxis? In theory, uh, I don't know it's been proven to be so. I, I know it's being trialed in many places. Um, the, the more interesting part of the question, though, is can you be reinfected? 
I would think so. The same way that once your rabies vaccine expires, you can be reinfected by rabies. So because it's not an innate immunity, it's a borrowed immunity, it does expire faster. This is me theorizing right now. Don't, don't quote me on this. That's my best guess. You're slowly disappearing into the darkness. I don't know if you can easily turn on a light or not. Watch, watch this. Watch this. Okay. Okay, Google, turn on living room light. Is that better? Oh, very good. Okay, Google, make me not orange. No, it didn't work. <laughs> Just have to live with it. <laughs> my phone is now searching how to do that. Um, here's one that might be uh, from Louise. Um that might be a little bit controversial because that's sort of cultural in nature, I suppose. What's your view on wet markets? I'm a vegan, Graham. And mm-hmm. so I hate the idea of, of eating, selling, killing animals for food. Right. And the idea of a wet market is offensive to me in so many ways. But let's focus on the, uh, on the epidemiological ways. Yes. Yeah. I think that was the question. Well, yes, but I took the opportunity as a vegan <laughs> <laughs> to get out of my high horse, my high uh, – well-treated, ethically uh, raised horse. How do you spot a vegan at, a, at, a, at your party? You don't have to. He'll tell you. Yeah. I'm sure you heard all <laughs> the those. The question comments. is, the vegan or the crossfitter? Who will talk about it first? <laughs> okay. All right. So the question is, what, what the problem with wet markets, if people don't know, is you've got a lot of different species of animals living close to each other in adjacent cages waiting to be slaughtered. They're under stress. They're probably not well. They're probably ill. So they're going to get sick, and they're going to share diseases. So this coronavirus, we haven't talked about the origins yet, probably came from a bat because, you know, coronaviruses typically come from bats. And it probably went into an amplifier species. They think that amplifier species is a pangolin. Sorry, could you say that last part again? It probably went into an amplifier species. Mm -hmm. I think the amplifier species was a pangolin. Went from a pangolin? Pangolin. A pangolin, thank you. Yes. Not that baby Yoda thing. No. Okay. No. Uh, pangolin named Madeline. <laughs> so from the pangolin, it went into people. So the opportunity for viruses and bacteria to share DNA and RNA is a, a laboratory for making new dangerous things. One of the clever ways that bacteria and viruses evolve faster than us is they swap DNA. So if two diseases infect the same organism, they can share notes. Hey, I'll take some of that, you take some of this, and we'll go off and infect some other species now because you've shown me how to do that. Mm. There's a great danger in having two sick animals of different species close to each other. They They can share these viruses and create a new super virus. That's why so many of the world's most dangerous diseases come from parts of the world where these wet markets happen. So in my opinion, the wet markets, stop them. Although I have read reports that that it hasn't been demonstrated that it necessarily comes from a wet market, that it could come from a bat biting someone. It could have. Absolutely true. It could have. And in fact, there's some arguments that our tendency as human beings to push into animal habitats is is bringing us into contact with with Yeah, that's how Ebola came about. I mean, um, because we went into places that we haven't been before. And we're going to get more of these diseases because of globalization and because of encroachment into fringe areas, but also because we're eating weird things and we're making weird things live near each other. Mm-hmm. So stop it. All right. <laughs> uh, let's see what I've got here. Um, oh, 
this is one of my questions. Hope you indulge me. Is it in the purview of epidemiology to Boxers. assess? Sorry. <laughs> Boxers, not briefs. Is it in the purview of epidemiology to assess the negative health outcomes of the economic damage caused by mitigation or, or physical distancing? Excellent question. If I say so myself, Mr. Kennedy. Thank you. Um, it's definitely in our, in our bailiwick. Mm-hmm. And it should be in every way's bailiwick to talk about the downstream negative consequences of our physical isolation, including the health consequences. Mm-hmm. There is an argument that the, you know, the cure is worse than disease, that we're saving thousands of people by having this isolation, this uh, physical distancing and quarantine, but maybe we're killing thousands more because of the, uh, the poverty that we're causing, the mental anguish that we're causing, the domestic abuse that we're causing, all the things that come with mm-hmm. the process. I don't know what the answer is, which one's worse. I do know to answer the question, this is something that we study, and we will study, and um, from years from now, people will be second-guessing what we did. Right. And it's not to assign blame. It's just we want to know as much information as possible right, in terms of, of uh, the effects of what we're doing. Um, have you seen any work that show, I think uh, Don actually referenced it, but I didn't get a chance to look at it, uh, models that show that if you didn't do the physical distancing, the economic damage would actually be worse than what's happening with the physical distancing. Yeah, I've heard of that. I've heard of that. I haven't seen it myself. And, you know, there's a thousand different studies on any thousand different topics. And you don't uh, know them all? No, mostly. So um, I, I don't know what to say. I'm not an economist. Hmm. I'm the other E-ist word. And so I'll let them figure it out. Possible. Like, right. imagine, imagine if we let the disease run wild and we had chaos in the streets and people afraid to go to work because they'll get mm. the same thing would have happened. Yeah. A possible breakdown of society altogether. Are you, are you up for more questions or? Yeah, man. Okay. What else have I got to do? <laughs> no, you're getting tired, but this is your job. Come on. <laughs> um, and a question back to Louise. Did giving people notice of the pending lockdown in Wuhan actually increase the spread of, as people fled the area carrying the vi- virus hither and yon? And does this mean the sneak attack approach to lockdowns is warranted and recommended? And I think that also happened in Italy, right? They, they said they were going to close down the Lombardy region and everyone flew to the south of, flew to the south of Italy and then spread it all over the trains and the sub, uh, planes and so forth. Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I think the sneak attack, as she calls it, is probably the right way to go. I mean, look, even as a supposed epidemiologist, supposed, I guess I am one, um, like you s- sort of saw this coming. I didn't prepare. Like I didn't, uh, luckily, my, my spouse, who is more prescient than I, than I, she stocked up on toilet paper and things long before this came down. Um, uh, and had I, had I known this was going to happen, I probably would have freaked out a bit. But, um, you know, I know what the answer is. I think that's, that's more of a public policy planning question. I think, though, the sneak attack, as she calls it, is probably the right thing to do. You're muted, Dan. Yeah, now I'm unmuted. It's right. a, there's some noise in the background here. But here I go. Masks, yay or nay? Should we all be wearing them? Okay. That's a really good question. Tell you what, why don't we stop this episode and start another one right afterwards? Okay, so... When before we cut on a break there, you would ask me a question about masks, yay or nay. And this guy 
a dog who's now looking at himself in the strategic places wasn't here. But the question, mask, yay or nay? It's a good question. And uh, I was on I was on a TV show a while ago, and they asked me this question, and I equivocated. I said the data is unclear, but if I had to choose, I would say yes. Now I think the data is better, and I definitely say yes, mask. The reason for this is, um, well, you're wearing a surgical mask, which is not an N95 mask. The N95 masks are the tight ones with the three micron width in fibers. Those should be used by healthcare workers and people who need to be around dangerous places because they need to protect themselves. Surgical masks are of a lesser quality and those can be used by other people who are not immediately uh, around sick people, but who might be in the same vicinity. But then there's the cloth masks that most people wear. And those ones are less about protecting yourself than about protecting the other people. So your mask protects me and my mask protects you. And the reason for that is, even though cloth masks have a, a wider uh, gap in them than, ah, than three microns, and the virus is like one micron, um, the large droplets that you produce would get blocked by a mask, in theory. So it's, a, it's just that little bit extra of diminishment of transmission at a population level and pay dividends. You've probably seen the charts, the ecological charts, comparing countries who use masks versus countries who don't use masks. And the ones who use masks have a much shorter transmission uh, process. I said that wrong, have a, a lower transmission rate. And there could be other things involved in that ecological data. It could be their public health investments, absolutely. But um, the danger of masks is that it gives you a false sense of security. And you may be touching your face more often, adjusting the mask. Uh, when doctors wear masks in, in the clinic, they're changing the mask for every new uh, experience, every new person, every new uh, examination. And the reason for that is you don't want to spread the infection that lasts on the mask to other places. When you're wearing your own mask at home and you go grocery shopping, for, for example, and someone coughs in your vicinity and it gets on your mask, you may be taking that mask off later and getting it all over your stuff. So masks are a technology. And like any other technology, it has to come with behavioral controls. And so we have to learn how to use them properly so that we don't make the situation worse. But if we do you know how to uh, use them properly, masks are a fantastic addition to the strategy of getting us back to normal. That's my answer. Oh, you're, you're, you're <laughs> I have to announce I did wash my hands very carefully because I'm about to rub my eye because it's itchy and I don't want to give people the impression that I'm doing that nonchalantly, <laughs> but I did wash my hands. Are you a fake doctor? <laughs> For 20 seconds with soap and water. Um, there was some noise in the background but before the break, some banging of pots and pans. And that was a Parna going outside and banging pots and pans at 7.30 for the healthcare workers. So that's what that was captured. Well, my, my physician spouse thanks you. All right. Um, is there a way, actually, a follow-up question about the mask. Is there a way to um, disinfect your own mask after yes. you've gone home? So um, you should wash them with soap and water. Um, some people recommend spraying both sides with hydrogen peroxide in addition to washing them with soap and water. Uh, someone had asked me recently, can you boil them? I don't mm. know. It's a good question. Mm. Uh, I think yes. But I don't really know for sure. But definitely soap and water is the right way to go. The hydrogen peroxide solution you get at the drugstore is 3%. Is that high enough? I don't know. I can't no. say for sure. Uh, but soap and water is fairly um, toxic to viruses. It's right. Viruses. All right. Some other questions. Oh, this is one I was wondering about, actually. Louise asks, 
Should we be worried about the Bronx Zoo Tiger? Not to be confused with the Tiger King. Testing positive for COVID-19. Does this mean the virus crosses species? Does this mean it can mutate more easily? The virus has already crossed species. It went from a bat to a pangolin, we think, to human. And we know that monkeys can be infected. We know that great apes can be infected. So um, it's not entirely surprising that it can infect other species as well. It's one thing to say it can infect a cat. It's another to say the cat can infect us. So um, that's probably not the case. The cat seems to have infected other cats. If you believe it, I don't fully believe it yet. I haven't seen the science behind it. I've seen media reports. I don't know how it was tested. Was it a swab? Was it a blood test? I don't know. Um, so assuming that the tiger really was infected, then it sucks for the tiger. Uh, so that's why we shouldn't be, probably shouldn't be spending a lot of time with strange animals right now. We don't want to infect them. It's less about them infecting us than it is about us infecting them. Um, so far, dogs seem immune, which is great. So um, that's my answer. Okay. And this is one from uh, Marianne's daughter. Why is it that they've been trying to make a vaccine for the whole coronavirus strain for 20 years without any success? Is it not virtually impossible to make a vaccine for the whole class of coronavirus? Um, it's not impossible. It's unlikely to make a vaccine for an entire class, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But had we made a vaccine for SARS-1 20 years ago, it would have been a more minor fiddling with the formula to make it relevant for SARS-2 today. So right now we're starting from scratch, essentially. Kind of like the influenza um, uh, vaccine we get every year. There's a reason we, get, we make that every year and we don't need the three-year lead up to all the testing because we know what it is. We know that it's safe. We know how to manufacture it. We know how to deploy it and to distribute it. So every year we just change the formula somewhat as the strain of the flu changes. It's not a big deal. So had we had a coronavirus vaccine from 20 years ago from SARS-1, it would be a lesser ordeal. You simply modify it. You probably wouldn't have to go through clinical trials uh, and we have a faster pathway. And why wasn't a SARS-1 vaccine ever developed? Failure of administration. Mm-hmm. So we should have, absolutely. But the second the SARS-1 emergency ended, people's focus shifted. No one believed us when we said this is coming back or some version of it is coming back. Right. I think this time around, people will think uh, twice and we're going to make a vaccine. Even if it ends tomorrow, we're going to make a vaccine. Anyway, yeah. So once you have that vaccine, it's easier to fine tune it or tweak it. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I think so. Um, Unless it's really, really different. Right. So. Okay. Um, And also from Marianne's daughter, Thinking forward, do you see a day where my 85-year-old grandparents, I'm assuming, can risk going uh, out in public safely again outside of one of the following three scenarios? They've contracted it and survived it and are immune. They've received a vaccine. Or ICU hospital space is so uncongested and capable that they can cope with most scenarios of, of COVID. So. I think that question was actually from Alan. Uh, I, the, uh, I sent you an updated Excel file. Oh, sorry. To change this slide. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So um, can I see uh, see a, a day when his 85-year-old parents and the dog is trying to get past me? Here we go. In absence of a vaccine or a cure or herd immunity, um, obviously it's challenging. But uh, yes, I can foresee a day because we'll also have other strategies in place. When we deploy all this testing in extraordinary fashion, mm-hmm. and imagine that... Uh, 
if your parents are going to go visit friends or something, everyone can get tested beforehand to know if they're a carrier or, or if they've been infected. So we can be relatively safe. When we get like the prevalence rate down to something known and manageable and not scary, we can all go about our, our way fairly confidently. Right? So, and as well, don't forget that the more time goes by, the better therapeutic options we get. And this becomes less and less scary and less and less fatal, especially for older people. Um, me and my parents are in their late 80s as well. And so this is something that haunts my thinking. But I think once we get the testing right and thorough and across all the population, we'll know more or less where the cases are and we can navigate around them. This uh, leads into a question I have actually about uh, the Swedish model, um, which may be too early to tell yet. But I assume they weren't closing all the schools because they wanted the virus to spread among young people so that they could build uh, herd immunity. Um, and they were trying to protect the most vulnerable parts of the population and let everyone else just get it. Um, I know they tried to do that in Britain to some extent, but it didn't work out. I mean, do you, do you see, is that ever a viable alternative? It's, it sort of is. I mean, it's a question I get a lot, by the way. Like, why are we all in quarantine? Put the old folks in quarantine. Let us go about our way. Problem is, we don't really know who the vulnerable population is. We're assuming it's the old folks. What does that mean? Is it above 80, above 70, above 60? It's also the asthmatics. It's also the COPDs. It's also the cancer survivors. It's also the obese. It's also the diabetics. It's also the hypertensives. Now we're down to like 20 guys walking around free. I mean, it's our society is fairly unwell in many ways. So it depends on how you define vulnerable. And then there's the idea, if you've got the vulnerable locked away, well, someone's got to visit them at some point, right? They've got to get food. They've got to get uh, services. Um, are we controlling to make sure that those who service these people aren't going to be infected if we're letting this thing run wild? I don't think it's a, it's a workable strategy. However, when we do return to society, it will have to be in a staged format. Ideally, uh, those who have recovered will go first. They're immune. Then the strong are, are let out into, into the wild, go back to work and stuff. Then the vulnerable. So in that final stage, the vulnerable, however you want to define that, um, are in lockdown and quarantine isolated while society ramps up. So the end stage of our return to normalcy will see a version of that scenario where the vulnerable are protected and everybody else is running around. Okay. That's a good well, answer. Good answer. answer. Yeah, that was excellent. And I thought maybe that we should wrap up the questions with that. Okay, uh, on our episode, we usually have a uh, uh, celestial emporium of benevolent knowledge where I try to bring some of my experience with Chinese culture to bear. Which is relevant to this outbreak, isn't it? Well, yes, China. I suppose so. <laughs> and uh, there have been sort of epidemics, of course, in, in all cultures since ancient times. And so I dug around and I found a, a passage written uh, in the third century of the Common Era, so about you know, 1,800 years ago or so. Um, by a man named Palger, who was actually a famous poet. He was a prince, prince and a poet. And um, he wrote in a, in a sort of uh, missive to someone, in 217 CE, pestilential, pestilential chi circulated, which I thought was interesting because they didn't have a germ theory in, in the third century, but they had an idea that some sort of chi was circulating. Right. Good name for a band, by the way. Pestilential chi. Every household suffered deaths. In every house, people wailed and wept in grief. 
In some cases, they closed their doors and died. In other cases, an entire lineage perished and mourned. So it sounds like he's talking about a, a kind of a version of social distancing, right? Where some people like tried to hide and they still got it. And other times people, the entire family died. Some believe that the epidemic was due to demons and spirits or 5G, I guess in our cases. Uh, those who suffered from it, however, were children of the destitute who dressed poorly and ate coarse food, people who lived in thatched dwellings and woven shacks. Those families who lived in palatial houses and ate from precious vestals, households with piles of furs and layers of quilts, rarely suffered so terribly. So I thought it was interesting that he brought the social sort of economic aspect into it, because we're seeing that COVID is actually hitting different populations, mm-hmm. different levels of severity based on their socioeconomic background. Uh, and then his explanation, it is because yin and yang lost their proper orientations and cold and summer heat were unseasonable that the epidemic occurred, right? So some, some climactic issue. Uh, and then he closes off, nonetheless, ignorant people still hung up talismans to expel them. That is laughable, right? which I guess is like drinking bleach or drinking chloroquine or something like that in our modern day and age. But, uh, so all of these factors were still there. It, well, they are there already about 1800 years ago, which I thought was kind of cool. That's pretty cool. It reminds me that, you know, this experience connects us to uh, our, his, our ancestors who went through their own plagues at various times. And mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like reading a history book and thinking about the Monty Python sketch, bring out your dead. We're living through the bring out your dead sketch, right. yeah. you know, and it's, it's a reminder that the, um, the challenges that our civilization has always faced are still, are still among us. In many ways, we haven't really gotten that much better at dealing with them mm-hmm. because the strategy that was used in plague times is still being used today, hiding right. your house. Yeah. You know? um, but here's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to be better. I think we are being better. Right. That's, a nice, that's a nice thing to close on. Yay. Well, thank you, Graham. I think, uh, I think we have to do another one of these soon. I think so. Uh, oh, hang on. We have a special visit from... Uh, I'm going to put my plague mask on. That's great. Well, people will keep their distance from you for sure. That's right. That's for sure. We can ride on out of here. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, whoop, whoop, Graham. Whoop, whoop. Yay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay.